Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Harder Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Rochelle Riley, the author of the book The Burden, African Americans and the Enduring Impact of Slavery, which is available to purchase now. Rochelle Riley, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Let's begin with the issues that your book looks into. It's described as, quote, a plea to America to understand what life post-slavery remains like for many African-Americans. We're all familiar with, obviously, the conversation that's been going on about racial inequality in America, and you'd actually written this book before the recent events all kicked off. But could you explain the challenges that you raise in the book. Thank you, Edward. And I'm so glad that uh, you're taking the time to talk about it because that was one of the main reasons for the book is to make sure we continue to have, well, actually to have those conversations that we have not had in America for 400 years. This has been an ongoing um, conflict in our country, one that people have ignored or buried or deal with in a little way and then get move away from it. And the death of George Floyd, I don't think any, I don't know how it's even possible to describe in words what that has done for this conversation that African Americans have been trying to have for centuries. Um, it, it's almost as if it sort of pulled uh, the wool, uh, the, it unveiled, pulled scales from people's eyes and they're seeing what Quite frankly, African-Americans have been talking about uh, since literally being freed from enslavement without any way to become a part of American society and becoming a part of American society anyway and still being treated like we're not. Do you think that that recent events in mind, one of the reasons that we're all aware of this is not that America, as some claim, has become a more divisive or racist country although there are elements of that under the current presidential administration. But it's now that we're just able to see what individuals have been experiencing in America for essentially the history of the nation because of things like social media, these videos that are being shared and instances that people are facing in day-to-day life. I'm glad you asked because what must be understood is all of this has been happening forever. None of this is new. The only thing that's new is that we marvel at how people are stunned and saying, for instance, oh, my God, I had no idea things like that happened when, quite frankly, we have been dealing with these things all this time. Um, When I decided to uh, do The Burden, it initially was going to be my book. I was going to just write the book. And then I said, well, as a former as a newspaper columnist at the time, that's just one voice. And what I wanted to do was build a chorus of voices so that people would know that this is not like the contemporary whinings of someone who should not be complaining and it's not isolated. So I literally asked 23 people to write essays for this book and this is what was most powerful. Not one of them dealt with the same issue. 
everyone who wrote something, I didn't have to call them back and say, oh, well, somebody already wrote about criminal justice. Somebody already wrote about the education. Everyone wrote something different, all the different ways that race and this constant systemic pressure of racism has been prevalent, has been a part of life, and has affected us in so many ways. And this burden that African Americans have carried is not just their burden, it's America's burden that they, you know, chose to not pay any attention to. And now people are picking it up. That decision you made to give a platform to various different voices who've experienced discrimination, have experienced this burden that African Americans have been forced to bear, is something that ties into another issue people have raised, which is, do you think that this issue of discrimination, this issue of being treated differently because of their race, is not just because of the sort of cultural issues, but is because the individuals who are African-American haven't been given the same platform as their white counterparts, particularly in the media. Even to this day, you will see more white faces on TV than black faces on there. Do you think that really has played into it? Well, it has done more than play into it. It has enabled it. It is why it has been possible and why this problem has persisted. The story of the hunt is told by the hunter, not the lion. And the lions are roaring now. And I think that people are actually paying attention where before, as far as they were concerned, all the lions were in the zoo or behind bars or not to be listened to. Um, it's a terrible analogy, but that uh, people are even now understanding how so many black men in America have been uh, brutalized by police or even murdered by police and nobody paid attention. Now people are going back in America and looking at old cases, exhuming bodies. But more than that, there's just that everyday constant stream of microaggressions and acts of hate that people have to deal with, which of course has, has yielded some of the funniest but also most poignant things on Twitter, where you'll, there's video of a woman not wanting somebody in their neighborhood when they live there, or a woman in Central Park with her dog that's supposed to be on a leash and somebody asks her to do it and she calls the police and claims that an African-American man is attacking her or making her feel unsafe. That's the kind of stuff, imagine being a person, just a regular human being, who deals with that all the time, and your parents dealt with that, and your grandparents dealt with that, and you don't want your children to deal with it, but you know that they will. That is the most heinous uh, terrorism that can be perpetuated on a people, and that is what African Americans have been dealing with uh, without people seeing it. Um, what George Floyd did in death is to make people see us. They're now paying attention. They now understand that burden, and it is leading to monumental change. One of the key aims of your book is to address this by having the audience of readers to think about critical issues, embark on these difficult discussions that must be had. People obviously have tried to avoid having them, but it's clear that they must be had. Do you see that? Obviously, there's a lot of things that need to be done to address inequality, but do you see that as the way to start this process of addressing inequality by shining a light on these issues trying to have these conversations like we've had in the days, months, weeks after the death of George Floyd. I can tell you that there are people who have been saying uh, since the protests started, this is no different. This will be like 
uh, what happened in Ferguson uh, after the shooting of a kid. It's what happened in Florida after the shooting of a kid. It's what happened in they, – they dismissed all of these as, okay, people will be upset about something that happened. It's sad that it happened, but we'll move on. This is not that. This is not a moment. This is a movement. There are still protests going on around the globe. There are still protests going on even bigger and more long-lasting in, in America right now. Um, there are folks who are actually changing the way they run their companies, the way they run their newsrooms, the way they teach uh, because of this. Again, it's almost like people woke up. Like, okay, we've been asleep for a long time, and now, oh, my God, is this what you were talking about? Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who wrote the foreword to my book, uh, ex expressed it so wonderfully when she talked about how the, the, the worst part of this uh, and why people don't want to do anything about this is because to admit that this happened uh, means that we're not the America that everybody thought we were and that we pretended to be. So it's this great, embarrassing secret that, oh, wow, everybody knows now. One of the biggest issues that exists in racial inequality and the conversations that's been being had is about police brutality in America. It's something that we can't ignore when discussing this issue. And in a way, that frustration that you were touching on there about people being concerned this would just be another instant is reflecting the fact that back in 2016 you wrote an article titled black lives must matter all the time raising concerns at the issue of police brutality towards black people however despite outrage after past shootings there was little meaningful political efforts to address this concern and while there's been a people power movement We've seen Congress again push back on any meaningful attempts to address this. Do you believe the movement that's been sparked will have some meaningful change, or do you fear it will just become like those past, like the ones you talked about back in 2016, where politicians will just try and sweep it all under the rug once we stop speaking out? I think that there's already been meaningful change. Uh, just the fact that, uh, you know, Mr. Floyd was killed weeks and weeks ago, and the conversation now is about what must happen next. You did not hear anybody say, uh, after the murder of Michael Brown, defund the police in, in big ways like you're hearing now, changing how police departments work, police officers coming together around the country to denounce this officer who killed George Floyd, um, officers being fired for doing things that you know their departments had been doing for decades. There are things now that are not being allowed. That is a huge difference. But more than that, people are finally having the conversation, not just about how police work, but about how governments work, about how courts work. Are people really doing uh, what they're supposed to do uh, in fairness to make sure that African-Americans feel like they are literally uh, American citizens and not three-fifths of a citizen the way a judge wanted Dred Scott to be centuries ago? Do you see this widespread condemnation of police brutality, this conversation that's being had by everyone, not just African-Americans, by white individuals uh, as well as a positive sign? Or do you fear that those white individuals that have come out there, as some have warned, could be virtue signaling, not actually walking the walk when it comes to it? They're just talking the talk. If you look at the protests, um, the, the, the coverage from cities around the world, from cities across America, there have never been protests like that, and, and there have been protests that have been diverse. There have always been people who have worked with African Americans for change, especially Jewish Americans, especially during the 60s. But you have not seen the diversity and size 
of outrage and concern among white Americans that we're seeing now. And that has been what has been missing through just years and years of trying to affect change. You cannot change a system that's run by people if those people are not involved. People are involved now. People are having conversations now that they never would have had 10 years ago, that they didn't have five years ago. People are calling for things and doing things and volunteering and demanding uh, in ways that show that they really are allies. That is the difference. Do you think that's the advice then that individuals who want to be allies of this movement should recognize that it's not just about doing their part, although that's important, it's about ensuring that the voices of those directly affected, that African-Americans are brought into the room, they're brought into the conversation, they're put on TV, they're given that platform to, to have that conversation. You can't just have allies going out there and doing them for them. They have to give up that space because those most affected have the relevant experience to give the right solutions that, that need to happen. When I pulled together the burden, what I said was that slavery did not end. It just changed addresses and moved from the plantations to the boardrooms and courtrooms and newsrooms and classrooms of America. And those those places, for the most part, particularly the ones that belong to huge corporations, belong to the highest level of governments, those were not rooms where African-Americans were welcome or could get into. Now everyone's opening doors. Everyone's looking for people of color to participate and to help guide and to help them understand what's going on now. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had literally uh, with white friends who, even though they've been my friend, and if I say I'm concerned about something, they're concerned, who are seeing this almost for the first time. What advice would you give to allies of the movement that they can be doing on a day-to-day -day basis, just ordinary people out there to help to address this issue of inequality, what would be the advice? I have three pieces. The first is to listen, um, because the reason that you are just understanding what's going on is because you did not hear any of these cries for help, any of these cries of injustice for all that time. Um, the second is once you've heard something to act, while you can be um, very, very upset and you can commiserate and you can talk about how horrible something is, if you don't do anything after that, if you're not moved even in your tears, after that to do something, to, to join the movement rather than watch the movement, then you haven't really done anything except express condolences. And the third thing, and this is the most important thing to me, you have to understand that this has been going on for 400 years. This is not going to end overnight. You, you cannot predict an end to this by December. The people who want federal troops to go into American cities to quell protests, even though some of the people that they're quelling and attacking are not violent and are not doing anything except what the very first amendment of our constitution allows. Um, you cannot accept that. You, if, if you are someone who really believes that this is it's time for something different, then you're going to have to not accept the status quo ever again, not accept the past ever again. You cannot tolerate racism. You cannot have people to say horrible things in front of you. You cannot ever again watch as a black child or a black man or a black woman is murdered and you don't do anything at all. On the political side of things, given that as laid out in the book's forewords, despite the fact that black Americans remain at the bottom of every indicator of well-being in this country, from wealth to poverty to health, to infant mortality, to graduation rates, to incarceration, we want to pretend that this current reality has nothing to do with the racial caste system 
that was legally enforced for most of the time that the United States of America has existed. On the political side of things, because we've heard about what we can do as individuals, with racial inequality ingrained in America and its history, in a lot of the political decisions that have been made, people are often unaware of how politics essentially created this culture of racial inequality in America throughout its history. How does Congress begin to unravel that? And how do states on a local level begin to unravel that? What steps do we need to see them taking now? Well, let me tell you what state and federal officials are dealing with. Um, the reality that slavery was not a racial problem. Slavery was an economic uh, solution to a problem. Uh, black people were not despised because they were black. They were despised because they were property. And as long as they were treated like property and you had free labor, you could make a mint. You could literally do everything you needed to do on your farm, on your plantation and make money. It, it was 400 years, 400 years that uh, we've been dealing with this inequality that came from those centuries of enslavement, where it was an economic boom for slaveholders, uh, people who enslaved people and kept them enslaved. It was to make sure they made a great living. And they did not see black people as people. They did not see any reason to change that once uh, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And quite frankly, there are still people who want that system now, because in America, as long as you have a second class, you can be in a first class. And that means you've got to make sure that people are not well educated, are not well uh, endowed, are not able to do things so that they can provide the, you know, the bulk of the service industry, the bulk of the um, sort of uh, the, the, the keepers of the rich, you know. And, and as long as you find a way to systemically do that, you are literally defining your society as a racist, as a white nationalist society. With the economic problem that you highlight there, we've heard solutions to that, namely reparations uh, as one of them. And recently the city of Asheville, North Carolina, voted to both apologize and pay reparations for its participation in the past enslavement of black people and for enforcing segregation and its discriminatory policies. Do you think that other cities should follow suit there? And do you think that would make necessary amends? Or do you see that as just a very small step in the process of healing? I think that one step is uh, how symbolic it is cannot be overstated. Uh, how important it is for someone to see that in action cannot be overstated. And it was done because the city is run by a black mayor. But quite frankly, America was built on slavery, not just the South, not just a few plantations, but the entire country was built on slavery and grew and grew wealth for white Americans because of that. Every time you bring up the issue of reparations, there's some white person who says, I'm not responsible. Well, nobody asked you for a check. This is not an individual uh, slight. This is not an individual uh, stain on the country. It was something that the country allowed. And so I think it needs to be something that's done federally. I think there are very simple ways to try and uh, get rid of the same systemic racism that existed before, uh, make sure it doesn't exist now. And some of it will have to do with monetary uh, reparations, because quite frankly, if you have stopped people from making money for a century, why would you think that you wouldn't be required to do something about that? 
Um, I have told uh, the tale of my grandfather who had a sixth grade education because of all of the ways systemic racism was invented to make sure he didn't do more. But he'd still accomplished so much, and he's owed. Now, he's gone. He's been gone almost 20 years, but he is still owed, which means that debt needs to be paid to someone for what he did, for what his grandparents did. Um, I was able to go back in my own history to a slave, an, an enslaved person named Balaam Pitt. I found him in the uh, will and tax records of an attorney who had the last name Pitt, because, of course, that wasn't our name. Um, but it, it, was, it was amazing to me to see that name and to see how much he was worth on that piece of paper and to know that it would take centuries for me to get to the point where I could be a newspaper columnist read by people around the country or um, my, daughter, my, my sister could be a banker, my cousin could run uh, a hotel. Those are not things that people 200 years ago, 300 years ago even dreamed of. All they wanted was the chance to be free to do it, to try it. And, and when you've taken that away for so long, it's not enough to say, oh, this great city in my home state of North Carolina did this. Let's let a few other people, a few other cities do it, as if it weren't literally the, the problem of our country. It's a recognition that without these individuals who were forced to engage in this building of America, America wouldn't exist today in its current form. Absolutely. I, I think that people forget that it wasn't just the planting of crops, but it was the shipyards. Slavery existed all up and down the East Coast. This is not, you know, when, when you say slavery, you, oh, that was just some racist old guy in a white suit on a plantation somewhere in the South. No, it was the economic factor that made America happen up and down the East Coast. And then later to keep going, you know, when they say go West, young man, well, they did that, but they were able to do that because of the America that enslavement helped create. Um, America owes that debt. You write in your opening essay that, quote, slavery is not a relic to be buried, but a wound that has not been allowed to heal. There's been a lot of debate recently over monuments to statues that honor and celebrate those who were instrumental in America's history. But they had ties to the slave trade. They furthered racial inequality. Some cases they owned slaves, and that's how they built their fortune. What should we do? What do you believe we should do with such monuments or such recognition that's provided to those individuals? Should they be removed? Should they be stored somewhere so that history can be told? What do we do there with those items as part of this process of healing? I, I think that, in particular, the Confederate statues need to be in cemeteries where they can be viewed and um, be made to help teach. Um, but for families who are families of races who are proud of that heritage and want to have that, that's where they should be, private cemeteries where people who believe in what the South was doing and believed in enslavement can go and look at them. But they should never be in any public place where the descendant of someone who was enslaved has to walk by and look at it and know what that stood for and what that person did. So no public places anywhere. And quite frankly, as people are wiping the names from buildings, if those are public buildings, I feel the same way. They should not have been honored for being racist and they should not be honored now. On that note, do you think one thing that could be done is ensuring that within America's education system across the country, these issues are taught in the proper lights that when individuals are featured, 
that history needs to be taught in that context. I, I think one of the saddest things, and literally it's one of the great failings of America, is that we have never taught American history. We've taught a whitewashed version of the myth. And quite frankly, you have centuries of children who have been raised on those myths. Columbus discovered America. The Indians were savages who were in the way and, you know, it deserved to be wiped out and then placed on reservations where they're not allowed to be a um, viable part of the entire country. And then you've got the enslavement of people that you force to come over and be the labor that built this country. And yet um, we don't talk about that. You don't find uh, the whole of, of how, how America was built in any American textbook. And there's a cabal of folks in Texas who literally have spent years fighting to make sure that the publishers listen to them when they're determining how to teach history, which is why they almost got away with calling uh, the enslaved migrant workers or immigrant workers who, you know, yeah, they did this job. But they were fine. They were happy. They got free meals. They got free housing, as if anything about the brutality of those centuries of uh, horrible treatment was anything close to something that someone wanted to do. Looking ahead to the upcoming election, because one way to address this issue is to ensure that there are politicians in positions of power who will seek to fix the problems that exist here. We've seen how the current political class has sought to suppress African-American participation in elections. Most recently, a, a stark example of that was in the Kentucky primary, where there was one polling place for all of the voters in Louisville's Jefferson County, which is where half of the state's black voters live. That is not coincidental. Everyone recognizes that is a deliberate attempt to suppress the vote among African-American individuals. What can both allies, but also African-American individuals do to try and make sure their voice is heard against this level of suppression? What would be your advice ahead of the elections? Well, we have been fighting voter suppression for, again, centuries. Um, while people talk about uh, how next month we're going to celebrate women's suffrage, that was white women's suffrage because black women didn't get the right to vote until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And there's still been for, you know, 40, 50 years, this effort to make sure that black people don't vote. There are obvious voter suppression efforts. Um, these officials who are giving in to this should be sued uh, because it's illegal. And quite frankly, anybody who says, we get it now, we understand, we stand with you. If you stand with black Americans and you allow these things to happen, you're not standing with black Americans. And if you are voting for people who are doing this to black Americans, you do not stand with black Americans. You cannot pick and choose the ways you want to be supportive. If you know that somebody is literally suppressing the vote so that they can be elected, you need to fight to make sure that person is no longer in Congress, you know, Mitch McConnell. And you need to make sure that if the president is saying something that makes it very clear that he's either a white supremacist or he condones white supremacist supremacy, you need to say something about it. It's not enough to go down that partisan line every time there's a comment or every time there's a tweet. And it's like, well, you just don't like him because he's hateful. Okay, fine, but what about what he said? Or what about what he's doing? We are having the worst uh, experience of a global pandemic because of a lack of action that would not have been allowed under a black president. That would not have been allowed under a woman president. 
But we have a president who is obviously inept and possibly not quite mentally stable. And people are literally making excuses for him every day. And not until he does what he said he could get away with, and that's shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue, probably right in front of his golden tower, before somebody will go, hmm, I don't think that's right. So I don't know what the George Floyd moment will be for Donald Trump. But until it gets there, we have to pay attention to, to the other things that he's doing, the other things that he's saying. We cannot allow there to be a second civil war in this country. When someone is fomenting hate and we know they're wrong, you have to speak to it. If you don't, then I don't want you to then come around and say, oh, I feel your pain. I understand what's going on. No, you don't. If you're watching all of these other things and that's okay, the words are hollow. It comes back to that earlier point that you made, that if you want to be an ally when you see divisive, discriminatory behavior, you have to come out and challenge it. You can't just allow that to continue because then you're essentially passively participating in that discriminatory behavior. I always tell people, do not aid and abet racism if you really are against it. If you're against it and you see it, you have to say something because only when the allies speak up as well do people pay attention. If all of these rallies across the country or the rallies elsewhere, let's say they were just held in African countries, you know, so all of a sudden all the faces you see crying out for help were black, it would not be what it is now. The reason that we have change happening and the reason that people are paying attention to the protests is because we have all Americans who want something different coming out together. And that's the big difference. Finally, what would you like people to take away? What's the message that you would like people to take away from your book? If I can offer a little excerpt, that'll answer that question. The scene is seared into my memory. Red, just paroled from Shawshank Prison, works as a bag boy at a local grocer. He quickly packs a sack for a customer, then raises his hand to catch the manager's attention. Restroom break, boss? His white supervisor calls him over. You don't need to ask me every time you need to take a piss. Just go, understand? Red nods quickly, acquiescently. He goes to the men's room. As he stands over the urinal, his words in voiceover hang in the air. Forty years I've been asking permission to piss. I can't squeeze a drop without say-so. That is what prison did to a grown man in a fictional film, The Shawshank Redemption. That is what being enslaved did to a people. There are thousands of examples in written history that detail the physical brutality of slavery. But what America must pay more attention to is the emotional brutality, reflected in a single word, permission. Permission to speak, permission to vote, permission to work in jobs that allow us to use all of our talents, permission to drink from community water fountains, permission to dine at public lunch counters, permission to sit anywhere on public buses that our tax dollars fund, permission to provide our children with educations equal to those of their white peers, permission to run for the presidency of the United States of America. We African-Americans in the United States have spent a century and a half seeking permission, hiding our lights under bushels, accepting less than we deserve because we've been trained to believe we don't deserve more. It is time to put that burden down. What I ask people, and this is the takeaway from every conversation, every reading, every uh, discussion about the book, we no longer are going to seek permission. It is time for us to be full-class citizens with all the rights unalienable rights that are guaranteed and have been guaranteed by one of the most hypocritical documents in world history, 
which was beautifully written and which made a lot of sense, but which nobody followed all this time. So it's time for us to literally uphold and pay attention to um, our Constitution, to celebrate that Declaration of Independence, and to understand that the great irony is that these folks who were declaring their independence and seeking their freedom from a king came right over to America and set up the same thing and made kings of men and animals of people. It was allowed. It shouldn't have been. And it's time for us to do something about it. Rochelle Riley, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Edward. Um, good luck in the UK. We in America will pay attention. We're so grateful for people watching what's happening over here and caring. That was Rochelle Riley, the author of The Burden, African Americans and the Enduring Impact of Slavery, which is available to purchase now. You can find out more about her on Twitter at Rochelle Riley and her work at RochelleRiley.com. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about the interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Ibalashnikov, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped to make this show even better. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>